wanted to come today. Uh, I'm just glad to be among family and friends today and be able to see each other's face, hear each other's song, and be encouraged by your witness of Christ. How many of you ever had your mama say, don't swear? And then your mama say, no, nah, I swear to you, boy, when your daddy gets home. <laughs> it's a different kind of swearing that she's talking about, isn't it? Uh, one swearing might be cussing. Another swearing might be in taking an oath. James is going to talk about swearing today, but he's not talking about cussing. The Bible does refer to that and tells us not to do that. But what he's talking about today in James chapter 5, verse 12 is not taking a swearing oath on the name of God. Let's look at that together. It's one simple verse. But of all, above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And that word condemnation is a strong word meaning the wrath of hell God's judgment now let's pray for a moment now Lord we have read your word and we pray now for your Holy Spirit who is the teacher who will not only speak to us but give us grace that we might receive his instruction and empower us to walk in its truth that becoming more like Jesus we might live honorably for him and others, and certainly that will bring him glory. And we pray that unto his name, and if you agree with that prayer, say amen. Amen. In the Old Testament times, before written contracts and agreement came about, and to be common as they are now, people would often have binding agreements with one another by swearing oaths. In fact, through Moses, the Lord actually told an instruction to the people of Israel that they are to do that and to do it in his name. For instance, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20 says, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. So in your oaths, let them be that God is in the midst of that, you're in relationship with him, most importantly, he with you. He is your God, so let your oaths be connected to him. And then later when Jeremiah the prophet was speaking about a similar experience, he was saying God was about the areas around Israel, the nations around Israel, that he would know that they were in a transforming relationship with him when they began to take oaths in his name, much like they used to with their names of the false gods. It says, and it shall come to pass if they, those area nations, diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. So God is saying, I'll know their transformation when they've walked away from their false God and they walk unto me in relationship with me and bear forth their oaths, their pledges, their promise, or their swearing by my name. And in the New Testament, we have people that are swearing unto God. For instance, Paul says, I call God to witness against me. 
they were questioning his motives the people were and he said hey my motives are pure i call god to be a witness unto me uh, which is basically what you're doing when you're swearing in the name of god you're saying god not only are you hearing this but you are active in this and if my purpose or my intention is not to follow through or if i fail to do so bring your condemnation to me that's what swearing in his name is and so paul is saying to them i call god to bear witness and then later he says in romans to that to that group of saints there for god is my witness whom i serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing i mention you so the the word is i don't stop mentioning you as god is my witness and so oaths are taken throughout the old testament and the new testament you and i take oaths today when we go to a court of law just very white might be that you swear maybe put your hand on the bible i solemnly swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth so help me god and when people are ordained to gospel ministry, deacons are ordained, they're making an, an oath, a promise to fulfill. When a pastor is ordained, he's making a promise to fulfill, bearing witness by God and the people of God. When you stand at holy matrimony at that altar, you're making vows to God and the person you're marrying, and that vow is solemn, is it not? So vows are just part of our life. So what's the issue, you might say? Well, the issue, as you see in your handout, in essence, is taking an oath, is assuring someone that you're going to do what you said you would be doing, and that God, who witnesses the oath, would judge you or punish you if you broke that word. So that's a big issue. Obviously, swearing in that way is a serious manner, a serious matter, and James wants us to think about the manner in which we do that. But oath-taking does not have to be sinful. Oath-taking was very much part of the Jewish culture. As I read in those Old Testament passages, it's very much part of the culture in which God instructed them to live by. And it has continued throughout the practices of the generations. So why is it that it could be sinful? In that early New Testament church, many of the churches were made up of Messianic Jewish people people who were faithful that Jesus was the Messiah and they agreed that their life was to be surrendered to him that they would live their life unto him and him give his life unto them and that infusion of that culture of Jewish practice of taking oaths and making pledges and swearing infused its way into the church so how is it that biblically instructed oaths are somehow sinful, so sinful that James warns of condemnation? How did it come to be there? Well, we find the answer in the intentions of the people, and that's what James is calling to their attention. The rabbis would often give instruction about oath-taking. In fact, in the Mishnah, there's a whole section that deals with swearing, the oaths, the vows that are taken. And the rabbis would teach, now, if you're taking an oath in the name of God, then that's a serious matter. You're attributing God in the midst of that oath, and it ought to be fulfilled. But the rabbis were falsely teaching that you could take an oath in the name of something else, and it might be a little bit gray area. You might have a little wiggle room there. If you take an oath in the name of Jerusalem, or you take an oath on the temple 
you take a, an oath on the altar, then that's not near a big a deal as if you say, God is my witness, or I, I swear by God's name. Those are binding statements, and the rabbis were, had been giving instruction to the Jewish people that um, if you do that in God's name, you're going to have to follow through or you're going to be in condemnation of God. But if you make an oath in something else, not so big of a deal. It's a little bendable. It's a silly way of seeing a spiritual way out. It's sort of like as a kid, you might make a promise not fulfill the promise somebody call you on it and you say oh I have my fingers crossed you remember that <laughs> sort of what the rabbis have been teaching the Jewish people in that day that if you're going to take an oath and you're not certain you're going to fulfill that oath make sure you don't invoke the Lord's name and James is calling them to task about that Jesus did as well Jesus said to the religious leaders, they were guides through the scripture, guides to the will and the way of God. He says, woe to you blind guides. You're not seeing clearly, you're not walking clearly, and you're not bringing others to do that. Woe to you, this is a judgmental call. This is not a warning, this is a statement of judgment, of condemnation. Woe to you blind guides. And look what he says, you say... If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by that oath. You see the distinction there? They're saying, hey, if you're going to swear on anything, make sure it's not on the gold of the temple. You can swear on the temple itself, but not the gold of the temple. Utterly silly. You blind fools, Jesus says, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And he goes on in this teaching. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? And then one more. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Here's the big kicker. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So what Jesus is saying, the same thing that James is pointing out, if you're attempting to be deceitful because of the mechanics of the words of your promise, then you are certainly in the wrong direction. Do you not know that if you're going to bear God's name with your oath or bear the name of anything in God's dominion, it's the same thing. so he's calling them to task everything that we pledge belongs to God everything was created by him everything is sustained by him all things are for him and for his glory there's nothing we can attach a pledge to and it not bring God in the midst of it so Jesus says you're bringing condemnation on yourself you're bringing judgment on yourself you know that you're attempting to cheat people and you are condemned in that. So that's what he's bringing to bear, the issue that he's bringing to the forefront. Now, why is that important? What's the import to that? Well, verse 12 brings us in attention to this phrase, above all. 
Above all is a phrase that means this is paramount, this is preeminent, this is important. Above all, my brothers, do not swear. So what's the big deal? What's the big deal with swearing? Why is this so important? Why is Jesus and James both giving us very specific instruction on this? Why is he saying it's important? Remember as a kid when uh, we were trying to convince somebody we were telling them something true and we would say something like this, hey, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Remember that? Some of you still might do that. It comes from an early 1900s poem which remarkably has four stanzas to it. And just because I know you're intrigued, I'm going to read some of it to you. Some of you will say, remember that time you preached about cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye? Here it is. Cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Wait a moment. I spoke a lie. I never really wanted to die. But if I may and if I might, my heart is open for tonight. Though my lips are sealed and a promise is true, I won't break my word, my word to you. And then it goes on uh, some more. And then at the end, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, break my promise, tell a lie, save my friend, though maybe it's five. It's trying to point out the, the big deal about making a promise. Trying to point out how we struggle with keeping promises. Now, what's the big deal, you might say? Everybody lies, Randy. Everybody falls short of what they have promised or what they swore or what they have given an oath. And that's precisely the point. That is a big deal, that everybody does that. People are liars by nature. The person seated near you, liar by nature. Lying is pervasive, isn't it? It's pervasive among people. It's pervasive in our culture in which we live. And people to try to convince others that they're not lying, you can hear it when people say, let me be honest with you. <laughs> mm, that's an indicator. Liar. <laughs> honest to God. If I'm lying, I'm dying. I swear. They're just trying to convince the listener that they're not telling a lie and in that moment telling the truth and you and I know that as an indicator of red flag after I preached this by the way and I was telling some closing words uh, somebody ratted me out and said oh you said I uh, that uh, you wanted to be honest with us <laughs> so uh, I'm telling you the truth at this moment um, the truth is everybody's a liar you were born that way nobody had to teach you how to lie they didn't have to teach me how to lie well, what's the big deal, you might say? Lying is just pervasive in our culture. In fact, exaggerations are commonplace. It's called advertising, right? And convincing lies are rampant. That's called politics. And untruths and mischaracterizations are acceptable. That's called the art of the deal. But the Bible states that lying is a big deal because the mouth actually reveals the heart and when there are lies in our mouth there's deception in our heart and that's the kind of heart that Jesus sets us free from so it's a big deal and it's a big deal to Christians before coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being adopted into the family of God the Bible states that we were unregenerate children and the devil is our father 
when challenging religious men who claimed to be from God and to speak for God, but were filled with lies and deceit and rebelliousness, Jesus said this about them. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now you might say, now this verse is about the devil. No, no, this verse is about people. This verse is about people who were unregenerate, which means the fa their father is still the devil, and they express from their heart, the heart of their father, a bunch of lies and deceit. So God, in truth, has come in Christ Jesus to transform us from that, to take us out of that place. That's what Jesus is doing. He's not making you better at speaking. He's making your heart new so you speak out of a new heart. You speak truth out of that heart, and he continues to do that. So you and I know that no one has to be taught how to sin or how to lie that people are utterly sinful and the expressions of their words are sinful. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, he tells us this. It is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. For all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Look at this part. Their throat is an open grave. So here's all the sinfulness of mankind. And notice what he points to in the first illustration. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. By the way, if that was a big capital S-N-A-K-E-S, that would grab our attention because we don't use the word asp very much. But this is a venomous snake. The venom of the rattlesnake is in their lips. It's under their lips. This is the plight of everybody. Not just people we don't like. Not just people who are notoriously sinful. Everybody. There is none righteous. And he helps us to discover that the unrighteous nature in which we were born in is often, well, is always demonstrated in our lying tongues and in our deceitful ways, in our mouth. The broken promises, the unfulfilled things that we have claimed in oath, the untruthfulness, the judgment. But fortunately for us, Romans 3 does not end in verse 13. This really is the setup to the glorious truths that are coming following that, for instance, in verse 23. Probably one of the most well-known verses in all of Romans is right there. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you are untruthful, which you all are, we all are, then we are falling short of God's glorious standard. What is the standard of God? He is truth. Right? Jesus says, I am truth, I am righteousness, and that's the standard of God that has been presented. We all fall short of that, and yet we are justified by the gift of grace. Justified justified in our sin. We, he has justified us in the declaration of righteousness. He has made it so that it's just as if we have not sinned. And it's a gift of grace. It's not that we suddenly got our act together and we stopped lying. God has transformed us by this gift of grace through the redemption, Christ bringing us out of that, 
uh, bringing us into his holiness that's in him whom God put forth as the propitiation big word meaning that God's wrath is satisfied in Christ so Christ takes all of that lying deceitful way that untruthfulness about us and he bears it on the cross of Calvary God judges him in that moment with our sin and is fully satisfied that justice prevailed and he did that by the blood which is to be received by faith so this message is not about you and me saying okay I'm going to do better and not lie sure do better and not lie but the fact is you need Jesus just like I need Jesus we need him to take away that sin we need him to put truth in us to give us a new heart a new nature fill us with the spirit of truth so by faith God redeems us from a life of sin and judgment and gives us glorious hope with a new heart and a new nature the transforming work of God began at our salvation and it is continuing this is the big deal for James it's continuing with our words and promises and oath and swearing that we're doing so he says with the new nature of Christ don't swear let your yes be yes and your no be no shoot straight talk straight be honestly straight in your words and in your actions hunter made a challenging point this last wednesday in our revelation study and i saw other people writing this quote just like i did the faith that doesn't change you doesn't save you so if you're claiming salvation but that faith that you have in a claim of salvation is not transforming you the faith that doesn't change you doesn't save you and i think he's on the money there so from a saved and transforming heart we speak truth walking in Christ and thinking with his mind we don't have to rely on words and phrases like I swear to whatever I swear on my mama's grave I never quite understood that one but at any rate you don't have to try to convince someone in truth if you are living truthfully just let your yes be yes and your no be no so we should come to an important conclusion and that is this that our hearts are the storerooms from which we pull the inventory of our words what is your heart it is the warehouse from which you are pulling words let that warehouse be filled with truth and let it be evident in what you say so James's teaching is far more critical than merely breaking a bad habit about swearing it calls people to pay attention to their heart but now look at this third aspect it's the imperative because Christians have a new hate new nature from heaven James gives the imperative and it's quite simple do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath but let your yes be yes and your no be no Jesus said in almost identical fashion those words the Sermon on the Mount he said let what you say be simply yes or no anything more than this comes from evil so you must be distinct from those of the world who practice deceit you've got to be different than the person who's looking to have the better opportunity in the contract the advantage the one who thinks so oh, I might be able to get out of this one I'm looking for the loophole and I'm gonna place it there be better than that be above that because you are of a kingdom of truth with Christ Jesus the truth in your life 
be a man of your word, be a woman of your word. It's so essential because God has made you and me ambassadors for Christ. Being truthful in person is crucial since Jesus gave us the responsibility to bear the truth of the gospel. Let it not be that people can discount our words because we're not truthful. Let it not be that we can't fulfill the promises we make and at the same time them wonder about our message of truth of Jesus Christ. Be filled with truth in your mind and your hearts and express it from your mouth. As Jesus said, anything less, anything other than that is evil. We must aggressively fight against the swift flow of lies and exaggerations that are like torrents in the U.S. culture. In the midst of the political season which we're in, man, lies just zoom, don't they? If you're watching debates, you're hearing lie after lie from both sides. And then after the debate, the spinmeisters start telling you more lies about lies. And I'm here to tell you, be different. Be different. Say what you say with intentionality of bringing it about. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no because we represent Jesus Christ, the Son of truth. We have the indwelling of the Spirit of truth within us. And then finally, James brings us to an indictment. He says, don't swear, let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, I've already mentioned that this is a big word in the Scripture in the New Testament, it's mentioned multiple times, over two dozen times, but in every case, it's always directed to sinners, never to saints, never to those Christians who are genuine in their faith. It's never mentioned in that way. So for those of us who are here today and our faith is in Christ, we're walking in Christ, you may still stumble, you may still slip, you may still sin in ways that's expressed with your mouth. I can tell you this with all transparency, so does your pastor. I don't like that part about me. I want that to be not part of me. I want to be truthful at all times, not be one to be given to exaggeration, not be one to kind of go along with the conversation so that I feel like I fit into it. I don't ever want to be deceptive or untruthful, but the fact is I fall short of that glorious account of God. That does not make me condemned. This is a word meaning judgment. It's a word that equates to the everlasting hell, the damnation of God. And for those of us who are in faith in Christ Jesus, our faith is that Christ took our sin upon himself and God poured all that condemnation against his only beloved son, leaving not a drop of that judgment for us. Blessed be the name of the Lord God there. You don't have to worry about condemnation if your faith is in Christ. But listen, if you're claiming Christianity, if you're connecting in some quasi way to the church, and the evidence is that you are flippantly making vows and promises that you're looking for the way out, the loophole, if you are a perpetual liar given to lies, it is evident that your heart is not transformed, your nature is still sinful and not holy, and your faith is not given to God, you have not denied yourself, then listen, James is saying, 
you are already in condemnation. And like every other aspect of the book of James we've been reading, this is a test. Do your words, promises, oaths, swears match that of the holiness of God in the redeemed? Or do your words match that of a father who is the father of lies, full of deceit? You can't be both. And so it's a test. James is not indicting Christians who struggle from time to time to be entirely truthful. What he's doing is calling to attention people who claim one thing, but their words express another. Same thing Jesus was doing. You claim to be obedient to my law. You are blinded to the law, and you are blind guides leading other people. James is not demanding upon us a burden of truth that we cannot bear. He is testing our words. And he's asking for evidence that Jesus, who is truth, and the spirit of truth dwells in us. For truth transforms our mouths from our heart. So is your heart transformed? Now, if the indictment belongs to you, then you need to plead your case to Jesus. And in a marvelously, wondrously gracious way, He will remove that sin from you. He will forgive it, and He will cast it as far as the east is from the west. And He will set you new in Him. He'll discard the old and bring in the new. He will make you a new creature, not a better you, a new you, identified in him with his heart and his righteousness. Does that mean that you'll forever be without sin of lying or deceit? No, you still live with a flesh that is filled with sin. But for the first time in your life, you'll be able to live in the power of truth and the Spirit of God. For the first time in your life, you'll be set free from that sin that is holding you enslaved, and you'll be free in Christ, for the one who is set free in Him is free indeed. Now let's pray about that. Lord, thank You for the direction that You've given us today, for the insight of the power of words and how they reveal the heart of each of us. I pray for the one who has not yet given themselves to you and their heart is still that of the devil filled with lies and deceit. And I pray that the heaviness of that burden of sin would be known to them and the condemnation that is already upon them, the judgment that's already upon them, that that heaviness would be known and they'll seek mercy from you. And that, oh Lord, in your tenderness and in your love and in your long-suffering, You'll draw them to yourself. And by the blood of Christ Jesus, cleanse them of that unrighteousness. And I pray, Lord, that you would fashion them all together new. Kairos, new, totally new, with a heart that is like Christ, a mind that is like Christ, and a nature like him by his spirit. I pray this, that faith would be poured out in such a unique way from heaven to them. In the name of Jesus, amen.